The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you want to study the Civil War, there's no better place to do it than Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And the best place, the best job to have to do it is an academic appointment. And the best academic appointment to have in Gettysburg is at Gettysburg College in the Civil War Institute. We'll talk to the new director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. His name is Peter Carmichael, and he'll be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you a student? Maybe you've just started going back to school or are thinking about it. If you're interested in adult education, tune in to Learning as an Adult with your host, John Steely. Our program will cover topics you can use if you're a current or future student in any learning environment. You can be learning online or in a classroom. Either way, John will help you with problems, issues, and concerns facing students every single day. Tune in to Learning as an Adult with John Steely every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University on a freezing day in January 2011, starting off a new semester half-season of Civil War talk radio. But although coming to you from the campus, not taking responsibility on behalf of East Carolina or the UNC system for anything here, uh, or rather, they're not taking responsibility for me. It's all my opinions are my own. My guests will be his own. He does not speak for anyone else. And it's important we distance ourselves from the university at moments like this because they're certainly doing their best uh, to do it the other way. It's not just freezing outside. There's a hiring freeze here inside the building. We've been told not to get any new employees. Uh, it's not just the university, but the state of North Carolina is restricting everyone. Uh, so things are, are tight all over. Uh, when uh, uh, our, our guest, who I'll bring on in just a moment, uh, he and I were discussing the show 
Uh, earlier, we considered the entertainment value of an entire hour of administrative complaints about budgets and other things, and we just might do that. So uh, we'll see as we go forward. Uh, but there are some good things. It's the beginning of a new semester. Uh, if any of the students from the newly uh, just started uh, class of history 3225, the U.S. Civil War class, are listening today, uh, congratulations. You are the first, perhaps, to do that, but uh, welcome to that. The We have new uh, uh, announcements, the, uh, uh, what do they call them, the, the public service announcements, or the show ads that you hear between uh, uh, the breaks uh, are not always the same every, every week. I, the engineers, I guess, uh, choose those and they use their imagination. Uh, last semester we had a lot of them uh, of the Learn to Swim show and now we have a Learn to Be an Adult Learner online. I'm thinking of combining them actually, Learn to Swim online. Uh, I'm not sure how we would actually do that, but it, it might be an interesting show. Anyway, uh, we've done the legal disclaimer, we've done everything else. Uh, a reminder, we have excellent shows coming up, but not one next week. Next week will be a, a rerun, as I will be at the Chairs and Deans Retreat, where we will spend uh, an entire 24 hours off campus discussing uh, what else, the, the budget crisis. Uh, so uh, you'll have more fun listening to the rerun, believe me, than I will be having doing that. But the following week, Thomas Mackey, director of the Abraham Lincoln Museum at Lincoln Memorial University, will be with us. Uh, John Marzalek uh, comes back for a return visit the following week, uh, director of the, the U.S. Grant Papers. And then uh, Dan Weinberg from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop will be with us uh, after that. In the weeks following, there are not one but two fascinating new books on Lincoln and Missouri and the uh, uh, confused situation in in that state during the Civil War and we'll be having one or perhaps both authors on uh, and lots of other interesting things in the months and uh, weeks upcoming. Uh, there will be, uh, to add to your calendars, those who enjoy following me around the country in the uh, Civil War talk radio caravan. Uh, the Public History of the Civil War Conference at uh, North Carolina State University on March 26th will feature a panel with uh, Thomas Mackey, our next guest, and uh, uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron Mast from the uh, uh, Soldier's Home in Gettysburg, not in Gettysburg, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, she'll be joining, and, and myself, the three of us, have put together a panel to talk about public history and Abraham Lincoln. So uh, one last bit of housekeeping before we uh, dive in. Uh, the uh, weekly thanks to Mark Gaffney for the excellent website impedimentsofwar.org where you can learn uh, about who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show. There are helpful links there. There are links to uh, last week's guest. Mark Egnell has his own uh, website uh, about his controversial book. And you can uh, go to that. Uh, you can go to the Civil War Institute that we'll be talking about in just a second. Uh, uh, there, are, there are links there and uh, links on the Civil War Institute page to here, actually. So uh, plenty to see there. And I'm happy to report there's now a donation button. Uh, long lost has finally been resurrected. So if you want to contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book and uh, Libation Fund or uh, uh, a portion of that uh, goes to, to Mark uh, for the website itself, which he is doing purely 
on his own and uh, ought not to have to pay for the whole thing himself. So listeners, if you do pitch in uh, some dollars, I'll be happy to send you a book and we'll uh, split that with Mark so that he can keep the, the new website going. It's really a nice one. Well, with all that, finally, let us bring on the uh, uh, welcome and overdue Peter Carmichael. Uh, Pete, are you there? I am there. <laughs> well, welcome. Uh, we, we missed you in October, but we're, we're glad the medical issue was minor, and uh, and you're, you're back 100% here with us. Yeah, I, I'm very sorry about that. I, um, I'd like to say it was an old football injury, uh, but it wasn't. I think it's an old tennis injury or something that uh, they kept me uh, they kept me off uh, for on uh, injured reserve for a while. But I'm back. Well, always good to have have a room back from the from the injured list. Well. You're, uh, you are the new director. You succeed uh, uh, the legendary Gabor Borat uh, as the, the Fleur Professor at Gettysburg College and the director of the Civil War Institute. Uh, where were you before that? So I was at West Virginia University for three years, and I was the Everly Professor of Civil War History. And then prior to that, for seven years, I was in the UNC system at uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and then I spent three years at uh, Western Carolina. So I have uh, bounced around a lot uh, and have finally uh, landed here uh, in June and uh, obviously uh, starting my second semester here at Gettysburg College. Well, I'll say congratulations on the appointment. Um, one thing I've learned, uh, you, you, you were briefly the director uh, where uh, uh, Aaron Mast is now. You were That's briefly right. the director at the, the Lincoln Home. Uh, that was what 2002, maybe. It, it was. I, I believe that, that that's correct. I I, um, I really cut my teeth as a historian in the National Park Service when I was in college. So I have not had any academic training in the field of public history, but I have had a lot of practical experience, and so it's something that is a great love of mine. And I took a leave, a sabbatical from UNC Greensboro. Uh, to be the first director of uh, the Lincoln Cottage in Washington, D.C. That's a site that's with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And I quickly discovered that uh, I'm more comfortable within the womb of academia than I am uh, in the real world of public history because uh, it is very difficult, as, uh, as Jerry, as you know, to be a practicing historian who does research, who publishes, who speaks, and to do all that and to still run a historical site to do the administration, the fundraising, the management of folks. And so uh, I think I got a book review done. <laughs> my, my five months when I was at the Lincoln College, I think that's all I accomplished. And so I quickly realized that that wasn't really the, the right fit for me. Uh, but during that short time, uh, I had the pleasure of seeing the Lincoln Cottage. And it wasn't because of anything that I had done. Uh, I saw the Lincoln Cottage moving in the right direction. Erin was uh, one of my staff members, and I'm very pleased to see that she has moved up the ranks and now that she's director of, of the site itself. So um, just sort of, you know, my love for public history is great, and it's what led me here to Gettysburg College as well because the Fleur professorship and the directorship of the Civil War Institute is not just an academic post. It's not just teaching. It's not just scholarship. Uh, but the Civil War Institute does a number of programs that reach out to general audiences, and uh, of course, that was extraordinarily uh, appealing to me. Well, it is—it's a wonderful position. I will—I uh, will say this: I, when when they were looking for the director initially at the uh, the Lincoln Cottage, uh, 
I was at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne at the time, and I was asked to apply for that. And I thought, well, you know, I was happy where I was, but I went ahead and did so. And when I heard that they had chosen you, I thought that was a good choice. <laughs> and last year, uh, although I'm very happy where I am and don't want to move my family and so on, when uh, Gabor retired, uh, I was asked uh, if I would be interested in applying for the, the, the job you now hold. And uh, I didn't want to move or do anything, but you can't say no to the, the Civil War Institute. It really is, as I said in the introduction, the epicenter of, of Civil War studies. Uh, it, would, it would be rude to put myself above that. So I said, sure, I'll apply, and went and did that. And when I heard you got that job, I made a note to self, never apply for a job without seeing what Peter Carmichael's doing first. <laughs> well, well uh, let me just assure you of this. <laughs> uh, I am certain that my uh, wife would uh, hire someone to break my kneecaps if uh, we try to move again, this is three moves in a less than a what five year period here that I've done. Wow! And uh, and so uh, we're here for the duration. Uh, so you can apply away. Anything well, that comes I, I, up. I, I, believe me, we're, we got the hiring freeze here. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, well, uh, now this job as director of the Civil War Institute, you on the one hand you are a professor, you get to teach, you get to write. Uh, what does the Civil War Institute do? For, for I'm sure some of our listeners have had the for, good fortune to to attend some of the right, summer programs. Right, but what? Right. Tell us about it. Well, you know, I think you know it begins with Gabor, and what Gabor had a vision for in the '80s was to create a center that would bring to the table a wide range of constituents, from academics uh, to people who are part of, of course, the general audience but also to bring high school students, to bring high school teachers. And so uh, he was able to accomplish that by a week-long conference or institute uh, that, of course, uh, followed, I would say, fairly traditional lines in that you would have an expert who would come and would give a presentation of 45 to 50 minutes and then question and answers to follow. And then there was also the element of the battlefield touring that he brought as well. So, it, again, it had that, that connection to public history. It had that link to a broad general audience. At a time, uh, and Jerry, I think you'd probably agree with this, there weren't many people in academia who were thinking along those lines. Uh, the only mm -hmm. person that I can really comes quickly to mind is James Robertson, who mm -hmm. you know, both Gabor and James Robertson early on really identified the need and the possibilities of getting academics in the Civil War period uh, to connect with, with, with general audiences. The, the sort of the centerpiece of the CWI's outreach is the week-long conference that usually occurs the third week of June, begins on a Sunday evening, runs till Friday, uh, two, two and a half days of lectures. Usually those lectures pivot around an identifiable theme and then two days of touring, one of those days centered on Gettysburg, and then another day in which the buses go off uh, to Virginia, D.C., and places like, like that. Um, the conference usually draws between 285 to 320 people every year, and it has a very devoted and committed uh, constituency. Uh, in fact, we are nearly, I think we're sold out for next year already, or we're taking a waiting list uh, for, for next year. And then of those 300 and so people, I'd say about 30 of them are either high school teachers or high school students. And that was something that Gabor was very much committed to in creating a scholarship fund uh, that would bring those people to Gettysburg. And that scholarship fund 
comes from the participants of CWI. They raise money. Uh, they fund these scholarships on their own, on their own nickel. And uh, it is, uh, I think, one, again, one of the many really worthwhile, uh, meaningful things that Gabor left uh, here at, at CWI. Well, it, it's, it does have a very devoted following. Uh, and as you say, it's sold out again for the, the coming year. The, the, uh, the Lincoln Forum that also takes place in Gettysburg, but it is not affiliated, uh, uh, takes place in the fall, has somewhat the same issues where you get a couple hundred people. It's small enough you can talk to the presenters. The, the, the people attending can rub shoulders with the, the Jim McPhersons who are giving the talks and, and have lunch with them and really get involved. The, the question that these groups always face, and now you face, is, uh, well, you've got the same hundred people who come every year and then, then some turnover. Uh, how do you stop it from just becoming a, an old boys club and, 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 and carry out the mission that, that Gabor saw of real outreach? Jerry, I think you've identified what is a, a real challenge, not just to CWI, not just to the forum, but also to civil war roundtables. And I think you know the one thing that we could talk about today is how do we how do we reach these audiences in non-traditional ways? Because these conferences, such as CWI, uh, they do seem to attract a certain element. Uh, uh, of, uh, of society. They're usually retirees. They're usually the people that have the time and the money to be able to come to exactly. week at this conference, which is wonderful, and we certainly don't want to alienate them. So th- the fact is, is though, we got to find diverse ways to connect with folks, and we see it, w- what you and I are doing right now, I think is one way. I, I have many reservations about the blog world, but it is undeniable uh, that it can be a very effective and, I think, meaningful way of connecting with diverse audiences. And so to be able to then connect the dots, and what I mean by that is to get an institute like CWI and the Lincoln Forum integrated with the blog world, uh, I think is, is absolutely essential because it is in the blog world where we have a lot of young people uh, who are having a budding interest in Civil War history. That's where they're getting their initial engagement with the past. And we have to you know, let them know that that's great and that's a wonderful place to have those discussions. But you, in fact, can come to what we would consider be a more traditional forum to come and actually meet these historians and meet other people because, you know what, a face-to-face conversation about history is probably not so bad and probably a pretty good thing to have. So it's, it's really about spreading the message of CWI, of the Lincoln Forum, of Savoir Roundtables, and reminding them uh, that we really need to have that, again, that table where we can bring everyone together in face-to-face conversation. That's important. It's essential. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that CWI will be able to diversify its audience as we move forward. Well, I think that's a challenge a lot of organizations face. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Peter Carmichael today. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you one of the 64% of U.S. adults that are afraid to be in deep, open water? Did you know that almost half of all Americans are not able to swim in pools? Millions of Americans have taken swimming lessons and still have not learned to swim. Melon Dash is going to change all of that. 
Tune in to the Learn to Swim Show, a program that helps adults learn to swim. You'll find out why it's different than teaching a child and how simple it can be. Tune in to the Learn to Swim Show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. People are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy. Long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer. Tune in to Holistic Answers to Mental Health with your host, Aileen Neely. Let Aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology. You'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress, anxiety, marital issues, infertility, and empowerment. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Carmichael. He's the director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, author of a number of Civil War books, and now taking over for Gabor Borat as the director of one of the most popular and uh, uh, really groundbreaking organizations in the the world of Civil War history. Uh, Peter, we were talking in the first section about uh, how to move the the Institute uh, forward into the 21st century. Uh, It's had great success with the traditional sort of seminar format, bringing people to Gettysburg for a week and, and hearing lectures and touring and I've had the the good fortune to participate in in it uh, in the past, and it really is just a wonderful week. Uh, but you talked about one one method of diversifying or trying to bring a new generation aboard is through uh, internet connections through the blog world. But uh, then, as you said that, I was thinking, I heard an interview with the founder of Wikipedia the other day, and he pointed out that their contributors to Wikipedia are 85% male. Um, the, the blog world is largely a boys' club. Um, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, is there anywhere else uh, you can go to try to spread things? You know, I, I mean, there's two things here. I think first, our concern about the diversity or lack of diversity in our audience is an understandable one. Although, I think that we often believe that the content, or the substance of the talks, the presentations that we offer, will somehow awaken. Uh, audiences that have not heard us before, that they will certainly become interested and that they will come in mass. I, I, I don't think that the recent history of what has happened in the Park Service really demonstrates that that's the case. I mean, the National Park Service has made incredible strides in being more expansive in their interpretation, uh, dealing with a range of, of people that have traditionally been left out of that battle narrative. And the end result has not been audiences that are more diverse. Now, of course, we don't want to go down that road as to why that, that hasn't happened. I, I think that the bottom line is, is that when we talk about the substance, the content of what we offer to the public, we need to just make it good history, make it complex. 
Uh, and when we do that, we will, of course, people it with a range of experiences. Uh, and, and so I, I'm not suggesting here uh, that we need to do more talks about women or more talks about African Americans with the hope that that will, in fact, bring a new constituents uh, to, to our organization. I do think that the way to bring in younger people, hopefully they will be from all backgrounds, races, and genders, is actually what we do within the conference itself, that we have to break from that standard lecture mode. Um, you got to have a little bit of that. There's no doubt about that. But what we're doing, for example, uh, this coming year at CWI, is we're having breakout sessions in the morning on the day of the Battlefield Tour. Uh, those breakout sessions will be roughly 25 to 35 individuals who will spend about an hour with a noted historian. It will be a discussion format, and it will prepare them for the Battlefield Tour that they will have that afternoon. This is going to be a standard for the CWI format because I am a firm believer that everyone should be their own historian. And so by getting away from the big lecture hall of 300-plus individuals, uh, we're going to use a different, more intimate format. And but what's critical to that intimate format is that we give people the intellectual authority to explore the past on their own terms. And so I think that that's another critical way that we can um, get younger people in particular more involved uh, in the Civil War field. Now, I'll, let me throw out an idea that uh, came to well. It's not a serious idea. A student suggested it in a, in a hypothetical exercise we had in a public history class, uh, and he was proposing a, a history sort of theme, not a theme park, uh, basically a reenactment, uh, a paintball field, uh, Civil War era. Uh, take your, 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 your breakout session in the morning and dress them up in uniforms and give them paintball guns <laughs> and let them experience the war in a way they never have before. Uh, you can take that idea and, and run with it. <laughs> well, right, and we have so many veterans who come to these events that I'm afraid that us weenie historians would be at a disadvantage on a paintball field with these veterans. But I have to say there is something from what your student has suggested that we have to recognize, and I think mm -hmm. we can capitalize upon it with the kind of technology that is available to us, and that is you get people with an iPhone that they have an app in which they go to the battlefield and information is unlocked to them at certain points on the battlefield mm -hmm. and that that information gives them choices. It gives them scenarios in which they can then interpret that information and then make decisions as to where they go next on the battlefield. So you could, for example, something that I have thought of, do something that's like in search of a private Ryan, and you begin at the Gettysburg College campus, and you are given clues, information that allows you then again to think about where you want to navigate on the field. Again, that brings back the, the mystery of, of the past, which we so badly want people to embrace, and it gives them full power and authority to begin their own journey on the battlefield. So it's not quite a reenactment, but it certainly gives them a degree of control. And like I said, it, it brings back the suspense um, that we all felt when we first started studying the past. And I think that we, you and I, and other academics, professionals, uh, we, we sometimes forget that. We forget that that's what lured us in. And so, for example, people are so dismissive of the ghost stories that are, I mean, wherever you walk in Gettysburg, you can find a, someone leading a ghost tour. 
And, of course, a lot of it is silly. I admit to that. But I don't mind it. And I don't mind it because I know that it is an entry point for a lot of people who find something really exhilarating and, and again, a mystery, uh, something that touches them deeply on an emotional level. If that's what draws them in to then read something more serious about the past, and then I'm willing to make that concession. As I'm willing to make a concession to give someone an iPhone and say, here's an app, go search for Private Ryan on the battlefield of Gettysburg. I think that that is great. We know how the stories end. The people listening to this show, we know who's going to win this battle or that battle or, or what's going to happen next. But uh, we didn't when we started. And even uh, with a great historian writer, uh, even though you know what's going to happen next, you 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 turn the page thinking this time, you know, maybe this time, uh, like, like Faulkner to pick a charge. Uh, now, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, what a great idea. What about... Uh, uh, a handheld device with one of these new, uh, quite sophisticated um, uh, uh, simulations, uh, a battlefield game that puts you in the, the bird's eye view of a battlefield, so that if you're standing on Cemetery Ridge, you can now call up uh, and make a choice, as you, you say, and decide. And if you choose to do Pickett's Charge, the the, the tiny pixelated figures march across your screen appropriately, um, it would be another way, again, to, to, to not simply take the people to play the games at home, but, right. but to play the game at home and then look up and say, and there is the field uh, across which these men are going, uh, the actual field. What a moment that would be. Well, you know, it would be, and I think that there's, um, I, of course, all kinds of challenges. Uh, I mean, there's some, some very practical challenges to being mm-hmm. able to pull that off, and one might even sure. say there's some real, I would say, ethical challenges, because do you want, in fact, to create a, a game on a handheld device mm-hmm. that now allows people to come to Gettysburg and not turn it into a paintball field, but they're coming awfully close to it. And so now you have a bunch of 20-somethings running around playing counterfactual Civil War history on the battlefield. That, of course, alarms me to some degree, but it also excites me the fact that we would then have a generation of young people who would find something so exhilarating about coming to this spot that, again, that it might lead to some more serious reflection. So, and, we're, and let me add, there are some uh, apps that are out there about Gettysburg that are, again, I would say follow that sort of traditional touring format there's an individual whose name escapes me right now who works at the Civil War Preservation Trust. He's a fine historian. He has just put out an app, and I have looked at it, and I thought it was quite good. It's quite good. But it doesn't do all the things that we just talked about, and that is making the visitor his or her own historian. Uh, that, now, you brought up an interesting point about the, the ethical issues involved here. I, uh, when I was at the Lincoln Museum, which was owned by Lincoln Financial, on several occasions, they sent uh, their business people, their their business leaders, to Gettysburg for seminars, uh, where they would learn about leadership and study battlefield examples. And there was quite a bit of uh, talk uh, in the Civil War community, and I experienced it uh, my, myself about the ethics of, of of this, of reducing the the sacrifice at Gettysburg to. How can we improve the bottom line next quarter? Right. Um, I, I, does the Civil War Institute ever 
uh, I mean, you're not directly helping businesses in that sense, but I'm just wondering. We're, you know, we are, we are not. But the Gettysburg Foundation, which is, as many of your uh, listeners know, has a partnership with the National Park Service. They do have a leadership training program that I think has been extraordinarily successful in terms of that it's been very appealing to a lot of uh, various business groups. And and I can understand why some people would have a reservation about that. I think that there's such great value in getting people to see history as a usable past uh, that I'm willing to make some concessions there. If this is someone comes to Pickett's Charge and because of Pickett's Charge, uh, you know, they're quarterly profits go up, then so be it. I'm willing to live with that. I could understand why some people, I think, would be, uh, I think, more uneasy about that. Where the Institute is going, I think, in a, I wouldn't necessarily say a new direction from, from, uh, from Gabor. It really builds upon really his, his vision, is that we have an initiative to put young people, our students at Gettysburg College, out in the field engaging uh, the American public about the Civil War. We had Four representatives from national parks, as well as someone from the Civil War Preservation Trust, come to Gettysburg for an entire day. They interviewed 15 students, and at the end of the day, 10 offers were made to our students to work as summer historians at national parks in Virginia, um, mm. West Virginia, and here in Pennsylvania at Gettysburg. And that, of course, is something that is I am deeply committed to because, for obvious reasons, my personal history, if it hadn't been for the National Park Service, working at Appomattox Courthouse, working at Fredericksburg, working at Richmond, I wouldn't be here today. There's just no question about that. And I feel very strongly about the training of these young people as historians during the most formative period of, of their education. And we're going to then build upon that at the Civil War Institute by raising money, scholarship money, for graduate students, for public historians, for museum professionals, I'm going to pay for them to come to the Institute because I want them to be at the same table with the academics and with the general public. When you talk about undergraduates, there's a, another initiative at Gettysburg College. and I, Enlighten me how much this is the Institute and how much the uh, Civil War Studies Right. Uh, program, but the uh, you have a journal uh, for undergraduate writers uh, just starting. That, that, that is correct. That does precede me. Um, the first issue was released this year. It's a journal uh, that has all the contributors are undergraduates, not from Gettysburg College, but the editors, they are from Gettysburg College, and the first issue is released I think there's the intention of continuing that journal, but to make it an online journal. So that's just one other way that the college uh, connects with undergraduate audiences. And, I mean, Jerry, I think you'd agree that the field of public history, ECU, has a tremendous program, but it's at the graduate level. And that there are very few institutions at the undergraduate level within history departments that say to their majors, you want to practice the craft of history, but you don't want to teach? Well, you know what? You can go and work at a museum. You can work at a cultural institution. You can work at a historical park. There are very few, I think, history departments that get that message across to their undergrads. And that's really unfortunate because we are losing a lot of really fine people who would be exhilarated, thrilled to work at a historical site, but they're just, they're just not aware of the field of public history. We're trying to do that here at Gettysburg College. I think that the journal, I think that what we do with our intern program, facilitates that kind of professional development. Well, I, th I think that's absolutely right. The students are looking for ways to, 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 to scratch the, the history itch that they have uh, yeah, yeah. without the idea of going into 
And it, don't you guys at ECU do something on like uh, art, naval archaeology? Is that right? Well, we, we do. We have well two things. The the uh, the the maritime program is is purely a graduate program and does uh, na- maritime archaeology. Yeah. Um, and that's that's uh, there's nothing else like it except Texas A&M has maybe the the only one that's on the same scale. Uh, we do have a public history for undergraduate program, which is actually bigger than our graduate one. Uh, oh. But but we do run into that same issue you just talked about. I had a student come in this afternoon. Uh, I'm gonna I'm in the history education program, but I don't really want to teach in high school. I want to do history, but I don't want to go to PhD. I asked him if he'd considered public history, and of course he had never heard of it. Uh, well, that's on me. Uh, it's my fault that I haven't uh, made that clear enough. But uh, but but we're trying to do what you're trying to do: uh, make undergraduates aware of these opportunities. Uh, that they can do these kinds of things and and and, and get into the field uh, it, in a relatively short way. That's right. That's right. Now, and, uh, and, and Jerry, I don't know if you, if you feel you know the same way about this, but there still is a little bit of a disjuncture between the public and academics and public historians. It's, it's yes, it, that chasm is not not as great as it once was. But you know, I'm hoping that something like the Civil War Institute can help create some important conversations because I think the general public would be interested in listening to museum professionals, public historians, National Park Service folks talk about the challenges of interpreting Civil War history to a general audience. I think that the public historians would learn a hell of a lot by this, and I think that these, so would the general audience. And I'm, I'm shocked that that conversation really hasn't taken place, and I'm hoping the CWI will do that. I remember, I think it was the Air and Space Museum, seeing many years, decades ago, uh, where they were restoring some World War I airplane, and they were doing it on the museum floor. The, the, these are technicians just actually doing the work. They, they decided instead of doing it in the, the, the back room, why not just do it right out in front of everybody? And it was yeah. the most fascinating exhibit. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're talking about the same thing on an intellectual level. Show them yeah. how okay. we do the work. Well, you know, and what you said is very telling because it, it gets back again to making people their own historians. And so we you know, as a profession, but even those people in our general audiences, they're always lamenting that American people don't care about history. Well, I don't think that's true at all, actually. I think no. they care deeply about the past. But if, in fact, I'm going to accept that, that, that point, I would simply say then, if you want people then to care more about the past, not only do they need to see history in action like they did at the Air and Space Museum, but think about any kind of archaeological dig. People just huddle around. Hell, is there anything more boring than watching people dig? I don't think there is, but it fascinates people. People will watch it. They will. And, and, you know, we need to do the same thing. We have got to create more exercises at these conferences for the general audience to come in and to do their thing, to practice their craft. Uh, Gary Gallagher and I are are doing a conference in two weeks at Stratford Hall. It's a a day-and-a-half conference on Lee, as you could probably guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And we spend half a day in small discussion groups, a Gallagher will get 25 people, I'll get 25 people, and we will, we will interpret letters and diaries. Man, the people, they dig it. They love it. Uh, and, you know, it beats them talking at us for a while, and they get to sit there and puzzle through these things. And so, uh, you know, I think that it, it more of these uh, Civil War roundtables they need to get back to their roots. And their roots were in the 1960s when they were small groups that sat around a table and they, and and they talked, talked about history other. amongst themselves. Let me push back on you on this point, though. The, 
you know, we, we hear at the university all the time, I'm sure you heard at West Virginia, we need more interdisciplinary activities, interdisciplinary is where it's at in the 20th, 21st century. And history would always have a hard time with that because we not only don't collaborate with other departments, we don't collaborate with each other. It's an inherently individual enterprise, or it traditionally has been. We write single author books. We go in archives and hide for long stretches of time. Uh, and the book has our name on it. That's our view. So we don't have a big collaborative tradition. Uh, and, and how do you make that interesting to watch one person sitting there in her or his seat looking at archives? Uh, it, it's, it's more boring than watching the archaeologist dig. <laughs> That's even worse. So I think what you do is you, um, like what we're going to do at CWI, you get a small group together before they go on a battlefield. You give them a few documents, and you say, here's the question. And there are no easy answers to this. In fact, folks, there isn't a single answer to this. Let's read these documents. Let's get out of the field, and we will work collaboratively. We will work together to sort through this historical puzzle or issue. And that, I think, has a potential to be incredibly enriching and dynamic, it also has the potential, as any good public historian knows, at completely blowing up in your face. I can't tell you how many times when I led a tour for the National Park Service and I tried to bring the audience into the discussion, and, of course, I would inevitably get somebody who thought he, usually a he, usually, knew it yeah. all, <laughs> and then things would implode. But, you know, I think it's worth the risk. I think it's worth the implosion every once in a while to then, you know, to, 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 in order for us to get these people out in the field and really thinking through these issues on their own terms. I think, I think that it can be done. Well, I, th I think so. I think there's a lot of potential there. We're going to take another short break and we'll come right back. We're talking today with the director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. He's Peter Carmichael. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be back in a moment with more Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bowen. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into The Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontzos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step -step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are a parent of a child with autism, you know that there can be day-to-day -day struggles emotionally. Now you can share insights and outlooks with the Mother Cub Show. Your host, Susan Lynn Perry, a parent of a child with autism, 
will bring a new perspective to the subject from diagnosis to effective treatments that are working. Her guests will include professionals, authors, and individuals that will bring wonder and hope to the world of autism. Tune in to the Mother Cub Show, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Peter Carmichael, director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. We've been talking about some new approaches, ways that the uh, the Institute, and in specific, but uh, historians in general, can reach new audiences in the 21st century with new uh, new ideas, new technologies, new ways to interact with people. Uh, Peter, let me turn and ask you a more traditional question. Now that you've been at uh, the college for, uh, well, I guess, less than a whole year now, yeah, right. uh, how, what, what's, the, what, what's it like uh, as a college? What, how, how is the town, uh, how are you enjoying that? Well, you know, as you can imagine, it's just, it's amazing to wake up every day. In fact, I'm looking out my office window right now at Hers Ridge. Uh, my home is, I feel a little guilty about this. I believe it's on part of the ground that Pettigrew's Brigade charged across on July 1st. And every day I drive in and I see, of course, the Reynolds statue and the Buford statue and then having my office right on the battlefield. I mean, of course, people often forget that. They think for whatever reason that Gettysburg College, uh, there was a, you know, sort of a, a buffer to the battle. It wasn't. It was, it was right in the center of the battlefield. So my, my uh, place of work is right on the battlefield. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. I'm incredibly blessed, incredibly fortunate to, as I unfortunately, though, made the mistake of saying in front of some Boston Red Sox fans, can you imagine wanting to be a major league baseball player your entire life, and then you finally get the day to play in Yankee Stadium? Uh, <laughs> that's what it feels like for me, unless you're a Boston Red Sox fan. Of course, they didn't take kindly to that remark. But it's, a, it's incredible. And what's really amazing is that the Gettysburg College is an institution. It's the first private school that I've ever uh, been associated with. And it is quite different from a public school uh, or a public institution in that there is, an, uh, there is an intimacy here, intellectual intimacy with the students that is extraordinarily powerful. And, and I would say, um, in terms of teaching, there, there's a, a deeper level of engagement I can get with these young people because the classes are small. They expect discussion. Expect it. Mm. They read before class, across the board, because... They're not no, no, you're kidding. No. Like, they're, you know, they're not distracted like a lot of students at public institutions who are having to work and do a number of other things mm-hmm. in order to get through school. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that all the kids here at Gettysburg College are privileged. They're not. But the fact remains is that the kids that come to Gettysburg College, they're here to go to school. And the level of commitment uh, that they display, uh, is, it's really energizing in, in, in the classroom. So it's, it's been a fantastic move uh, for me, and, uh, and CWI's connection, relationship to the college is a, is a really positive one, and the college is on the cusp of embarking on some commemorative activities for the 150th, and the college is very much behind promoting, advancing, spreading knowledge about the history of the institution 
within its Civil War context. And uh, they do something that I think is fantastic. It's called First Walk. The freshman class, during the first week mm-hmm. of class, gets together, they shut down the streets, and we all walk to the National Cemetery. Who leads the way? But a historian. <laughs> last, uh, last, last fall, or last summer, I should say, it was Michael Burlingame. We walked mm-hmm. to the National Cemetery, and then Michael Burlingame read the Gettysburg Address and then offered some remarks. It is a wonderful, amazing tradition that immediately impresses upon these young people the power of that historical past of Gettysburg, of being here. Uh, immediately, these kids feel it, and it's wonderful. It's fantastic. Wow. With, with all that at stake, um, of course, our listeners all know Gettysburg, uh, the, the integrity of the experience is being uh, challenged again by those who want to uh, build a casino. Uh, uh, where, where's, where does that stand at the moment? Well, you know, it has been, the decision has been postponed by the State Gaming Commission, and I'm not sure when they're going to revisit that issue. So uh, it is very much hanging over this community, and it is an issue, as one, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, is a very divisive one here. Uh, and it is unfortunate that some of the people who are advancing uh, this casino, I think, are misleading folks about the economic benefits of the casino because casinos, they are created to be islands unto themselves. And so for those people who think that there's going to be economic spill-off here in Gettysburg, they're mistaken because that casino will have a hotel, will have restaurants, will have gas stations, will have laundries, will have absolutely everything right there. And so uh, it, it's uh, the, the misinformation, uh, and, and it's it really uh, it's disturbing and it's unfortunate. But you can also understand why some people in tough economic times would see that as a viable option. The, the, the odd thing is you can imagine in a, a place that doesn't have much else to offer, you'd say, well, this will bring people from out of town. But you're already drawing a million people from out of town every year. And the idea that this will draw, you know, come down from a casino in Connecticut to go to the one in Pennsylvania uh, is not going to happen. I will say I, I experienced the hotel where the Lincoln Forum now takes place. Uh, it was past November. They, they moved from... Uh, a battlefield area hotel to a larger one to accommodate the larger group. And it is one of these hotels built newly anticipating a casino. And you're exactly right. It is an island unto itself. You can't walk anywhere from it. Uh, you must get in your car uh, to go anywhere. But everything's already there uh, in the immediate area. So uh, you, you could very easily go there and spend the whole time and not actually see the battlefield. That's right. And, you know, I, I uh, it, it's, impossible to imagine the kind of runoff that we could potentially get from a casino in terms of the kinds of social problems that it could mm-hmm. bring, how it could affect the visitor's experience at Gettysburg. I, I, I can't look into that crystal ball. But I will say this, that I have to put that casino issue to, a, to the side. Whenever I go for a jog on the battlefield and I see so many people engaging the historical landscape and story here. And so you talked about, you know, the joy of living at Gettysburg. There is incredible joy in seeing how many people still come here and find this sacred ground as a really meaningful place to think in a very deep and, I would say, critical way about our past. And um, no casino is going to ever stop that from happening. No, no way. That's no. Okay. Have you met the uh, superintendent uh, of, of the National uh, Park? 
Yes, uh-huh. uh, Bob Kirby, who's from Petersburg National Park, he has uh, arrived on the scene. I think he's been here for a few months. He is superb. He did a wonderful job down at Petersburg. In fact, uh, largely because of him, there is a visitor center at the Five Forks Battlefield, which is part of Petersburg. Uh, he is now on board here. He and I and Scott Hartwig, Brian Fitzgerald, um, we have had some talks, conversations about 2013, which, of course, was the 150th of Gettysburg. And we have in the works three major conferences that will take place. Of those three, I'm including the Civil War Institute. The first conference, which will take place in the spring of 2013, is my hope, my expectation, will bring public historians, museum professionals, academics, and the general public together. I'm in the process of trying to raise money to create, in essence, scholarship funds for museum and public historians, because most of these folks do not have at their disposal any money for travel. Mm-hmm. So I am, uh, it's, it's my intent to invite more than 100 people, professionals in our field, mm-hmm. who will not only be delivering papers, but they will be involved in what I call working groups where they will sit eight to ten people around the table, and the issue will be the challenges of interpreting emancipation at Civil War parks. And you will see around this table, eight to ten individuals, a lively conversation, and then there will be an audience, of course, of 20 to 30 people who will be absorbing all of this, and then after 30 minutes, then the audience jumps in. So that spring conference of 2013, many people call it unconferencing. We're not going to just have a few individuals talking at the masses, we're going to have these breakout sessions, these working groups, and they're going to be composed of a really, I think, interesting mix of professionals from our field. So 2013, because of Kirby, uh, we're going to, I think, do some really interesting things with the National Park. Well, that sounds, sounds very intriguing, and I know listeners will be interested and want to keep abreast of that, which they can do, I'm sure, through the website uh, of the CWI. Now, what yes, about your own work? Are you... Are you uh, with everything else going on, are you able to, to do any research? You know, I, I, I'm still I'm plugging away on a book on the common soldier. It is for the University of North Carolina book, uh, University of North Carolina uh, 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 series uh, called the Littlefield series. And the book is called The War for the Common Soldier. And uh, it is a difficult subject because there have been so many people, like yourself, who have written about this subject with such analytical depth that it has been a challenge, and I mean a challenge, to find a new line of inquiry into a subject that is really honed in on why soldiers fought. And much room to maneuver in that area. We've had so much good work done there. So my approach to this is not what soldiers thought, but how they thought. Hmm. It's a little bit of a different angle, and it Hmm. really takes me down the road of cognition. A lot of people say that I've become maybe too embedded in theory in approaching this topic, how they thought. But it is really the only way to reveal that ground level of perception uh, where you can really get to the, uh, what I would say, uh, the essence, the essence of how Civil War soldiers experienced the war. Why they thought? What motivates soldiers is very important and valuable questions, but how they thought is really the angle that I'm taking, and I'm hoping that it'll, uh, that it'll open up new dimensions to the Civil War experience. Well, that, that, as you say, it's, it's well-worked ground, but uh, there's always room for a new angle to, uh, uh, to look at anything. Uh, one question I often ask guests, uh, especially when we get to the end of the hour, I'll, I'll say, what, uh, 
what about a, f- a favorite book uh, of yours? Now, on your website, there's an interview where you say what your favorite books are, so I've, I already know the answers. Uh, but that may have changed since you gave this. If you're like everyone else, we all get a new favorite book every time we read something else. Um, what, what's good and recent? So good and recent. Uh, something that I just finished. It's fantastic. Confederate Reckoning by Stephanie McCurry. Confederate Reckoning by Stephanie McCurry. Uh, McCurry looks, focuses on the experience of women in the South, mostly lower class white women, as well as slaves. It is a brilliant book in looking at the political action of these women, especially how these women use the idea of being soldier wives. They use that as a way to advance an agenda against state and federal officials within the Confederacy, of course, to, to make demands upon the state for welfare issues. Nobody, and I mean nobody, has really taken that angle like McCurry. She writes beautifully, and she argues with a passion that is, I mean, there were times that I was agitated reading the book, and I'm like, why am I so upset right now? And it's largely because uh, her words, they just, they, they, they animate you when you read them. It is, it is a wonderful book, Confederate Reckoning, and uh, it's just, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Wow. Great book. Well, it, it, it sounds, sounds good. Listeners who uh, want to hear about your work can go to the Civil War archives. You and I talked about uh, your work on the, the last generation, the, uh, the young Virginians who fought in the war. That was uh, four years ago, I think, we had that conversation. It did. And, uh, it did. Uh, so so uh, you know, we didn't get to talk too much about what, what you're doing, but listeners, you want to go back and check that out if you're interested in what you've heard. And listeners, you definitely want to uh, explore the website of the Civil War Institute. And uh, uh, when you're at Gettysburg, uh, you know, take a look at Gettysburg College. Uh, well, Peter, we are, as always happens on the show, out of time too soon. But thank you so much for being on the show. It's great, Jerry. And I, I hope that we can get you and Civil War Radio uh, up to Civil War Talk Radio up to the Institute uh, this summer. We'd love to have you. The, to do a show from there would be wonderful. I hope yeah, we can yeah, do that. And listeners, thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.